Welcome to Descriptive, a podcast about JavaScript and other things. I'm your host, Khalil, and this is episode 8. To keep making money off of it, you have to make it easy to work on. Today's guest is Jameson Benz. He makes software at Qualico, podcasts at JavaScript Jabber, and he is the world record holder for most yodeling endorsements on LinkedIn. Welcome to the show, Jameson. Thank you very much. Uh, I wrote that before I verified that I was the world record holder. And we actually did check last week. And someone has two yodeling endorsements, and I think I have three. Okay, fantastic. So I, am, I don't yodel, but I have the most endorsements. <laughs> That's great. <clears throat> yep. Okay, cool. Um, so how did you get into programming? So I, uh, I lived in Brazil for a couple years, and I... Um, one of my friends there had studied, uh, I think it was information systems would be the translation. Uh, he was a, a Brazilian guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, he just, I, I didn't really know what I was doing with my life or what I wanted to do. And he just suggested that I look up software development um, when I got home and, and went back to school. Um, so I was a sophomore in college when I took my intro to computer science class. And that was the first time I'd ever written any code. Um, it was full of these kids that had kind of grown up programming and knew everything that the class would ever teach. So they just sat on their laptops and played StarCraft the whole time. <laughs> and uh, I was just like pulling my hair out, trying to figure out how Java worked and what programming was. But I loved it. It was really exciting, even though it took a lot of effort to kind of get up to speed. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's a weird story. I feel like most people start out when they're younger and kind of grow up with technology. I always liked video games when I was a kid, but I never really played that many. And so I never, uh, I never got exposed to it. I just kind of admired it from afar. Yeah. yeah. For me, it was actually the same thing. I also started programming in university. Uh, it's, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's very mixed, actually. I mean, you, you have a lot of people, I think, that just started in a university it's a classic like java introduction to programming mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh but yeah you have a lot of those uh, people that did it from early on as well yeah i wonder if uh so i feel like in some ways i might still be behind some of the people that have been doing it their whole lives but in some ways it seems like the differences didn't matter that much once we got a year or two into the program hmm. uh, maybe because the kinds of stuff you do if you're like a 14-year-old kid who likes computers are different than the kinds of things you do in school, different enough that you kind of level out as time goes on. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's, I guess it's, it's, very, it's very individual after a certain part. Uh, sure. After a certain time. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so, so basically you, you graduated as mm-hmm. a, uh, a computer scientist. <laughs> yep, I did computer science with an emphasis in bioinformatics. Um, okay. That means that for a brief period, I thought I wanted to go to medical school, so I took all these biology and chemistry classes. Mm-hmm. And then I took organic chemistry, and I decided I didn't want to go to medical school. <laughs> I didn't want to go bad enough to to do well in organic chemistry. Okay. But I, I uh, got to take this fun detour. Okay, cool. So what happened next? 
Um, so while I was in school, I started working as a webmaster for the computer science department. Um, they kind of hired me as a favor, not because I, I was qualified to do the job. Um, and I worked with a really great developer who's actually, he, I think he's a developer evangelist at Apple now named Dave DeLong. Okay. Um, it was doing web stuff, but he just talked my ear off about how cool Coco was and how he wrote all his PHP code inspired by like UI kid. And I don't know. So I, I learned a lot about just boots on the ground programming from him. Um, after that, I worked at a radar company called Spotter RF. They make like backpack portable radars that you just will go out and plant in, in a site. And then you can use this iPad type thing to see uh, movement on the radars, which is kind of cool technology. Um, I didn't really like the defense contractor style part of it, but there were some cool things we did there. Mm -hmm. um, and then after that, I worked at a social television startup called i.tv. Um, I just left there about a month ago. So how long and did you work there? So I worked there for about three years. Okay. Um, the team was pretty small when I first started. Um, I think there were like three or four other developers. And then we, we grew to around 10 or 15 developers. Um, it, it was a really interesting place because I felt like that was the first place I worked where everyone there was smarter than I was. And I, I had to grow a lot to kind of keep up with people, which was fun. Cool. I mean, I, yeah, I, I loved the team. And since it was a small startup, they let me do things that I wouldn't have gotten to do at a big company. Mm -hmm. And then uh, after a few years, I kind of realized that even though I really loved the people there, that I value being able to work on products that I, that I really care about and I feel like are making the world a better place. Um, and ITV was a, a great company that um, was trying to build something to make people watch more TV, which I don't, I don't like TV. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So there's some kind of cognitive dissonance going on there. So, so uh, um, I work at Koalico right now, which is an education technology startup. And education is awesome. I love education. It made yeah. me who I am today. So uh, I can really get behind the mission of the company beyond just a place to grow and, and make money. Okay. So, but it seems like you definitely, you learned a lot at ITV. Uh, mm -hmm. before so what what were the the most important things that you that you took from there um that is a really good question so i i think i learned before i went to itv i i had this um mythical idea in my head that there was always the one true way to do things and that it took a long time to figure out what that way was and uh, coming to ITV, I realized the value of, of just getting stuff done. And if the product is good enough, then the code will kind of become good enough because it has to. So, uh, and how would that guess, happen through re rewrites or? Yeah, I mean, so if you're if you're making money off something, then <clears throat> to keep making money off of it, you have to make it easy to work on. Like you have, yeah business incentives to make progress on the code mm -hmm. um so instead of 
just kind of sitting in my cubicle for days on end without doing anything while I'm, I'm, I, I was before I was probably a little paralyzed to try and do things because I wanted to make sure they were perfect. Mm-hmm. And at ITV, I, I feel like I learned that you, you do stuff and then you iterate to make it better instead of just trying to make things perfect the first time around. I guess that's kind of a vague lesson that isn't super technical, but well, I mean, I, I learned think, stuff about programming too, but that's maybe the biggest one. Yeah, cool. I mean, I think I think it's uh, it's a super important lesson that for some reason uh, you only learn with experience when it comes to programming. Like, it's really something that you have to experience. Like, it's it, basically it's pragmatism, right? Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to describe it. Yeah, and um, to be to kind of lose the fear of not doing it perfectly and to just go ahead and 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 um get something done i think that's yeah i think that's a that's a really really important lesson and 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 i for me personally um it really just really sunk in after after you know a few years doing it like three four years or something like that sure so i I definitely think it has to do it's something that that you definitely learn with experience and if you if you have if you have a good environment or smart people around you, you will definitely learn faster, I guess. I feel like it could have something to do with the fact that I learned how to program in school as well, mm-hmm. where the programming assignments that you're given are um, they're questions with a specific answer. And so you sit down and figure out the right answer to them and then you code it up. And you're also, you're both judged on the quality of your code in some ways, and you're also not really working with a living code base you just make it and then you submit it and then you're done and you move on to something else um, right and so it's, and it's also oh, a little ahead. bit how stuff is done in java right so there is always a specific way to do something sure yeah. i haven't done tons of java besides in school so i don't know <laughs> yeah. sounds good though i'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll agree that, that's what i remember i i never pro- programmed uh, java out of school either yeah. uh, uh, um Okay, so but what kind of what was your tech stack then? Or what were you doing full stack stuff or? Yeah, so I've mostly I guess my whole career I've done full stack. Even when I was first starting as a webmaster, we uh, we were working on this Drupal site and PHP, and I was doing like the SQL queries and I was writing uh, terrible JavaScript. I remember I didn't know how um, the event loop worked, or I didn't really understand what asynchronicity was. So mm-hmm. we had this crazy form that had all these fields that would change depending on values of other fields and i couldn't get them to match up correctly because there was some race condition mm-hmm. so i changed all the ajax calls to async false <laughs> so <laughs> they would all just block forever until they came back <laughs> that was the first javascript i remember writing um nice. yeah go ahead yeah you gonna say something no i, w- I just said nice yeah oh yeah it, <laughs> it was nice i'm sure someone cursed my name afterwards <laughs> uh then at spotter rf i think it's yeah I, I guess it's been long enough i can talk about the tech stack uh they were they're were actually doing node on these arm boards um so it wasn't node as like a web server that outside things would hit the the radars kind of talk to this node server so there's only one or two clients so it's kind of a weird environment but uh, that was my first exposure to node.js Hmm. And then um, at ITV, we had. You're back? Hey. Hey. Okay. All right. 
where did I cut off? Uh, basically, you just started talking about uh, Node, how you were using Node at the radar radar company. Yeah. So it was a, a pretty non-traditional use for it because we weren't putting up web servers that were being hit by lots of clients. It was just for communication between these individual radar units and this central computer thingy. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I learned Node, but I didn't learn a ton about running Node as like most people run it on, on the web, kind of. Um, but that experience was enough to, to get someone interested in me at ITB because they were doing Node as well. And it was kind of, I think it was right around when Node 4 came out. So there weren't a lot of, it wasn't an easy skill set to hire for, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Cool. So then uh, at but, ITV, I did, oh, go ahead. Uh, uh, so, but, but that, so they were using Node really early on then. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it was cool. Um, Do you think it was the right use case for Node? At the, the radar company? Mm -hmm. uh, I think the, so the reason they used Node was because they didn't want to write everything in C, basically. There was some low-level stuff written in C, though, so they still wanted some kind of... Um, uh, there were some performance constraints, so they didn't want to run the whole JVM. And I guess someone looked at Ruby and thought that was too slow and used too much memory, and Node was kind of a good middle ground between a high-level language that was easy to do networking stuff in mm -hmm. and not crazy overhead. Okay. So I think it was okay. I, I guess if we did it again, maybe something like Golang would be better where it's lighter weight a little bit and you don't have this virtual machine you have to run. It's just a binary. Yeah. But for the time, that I think it was sense. a fine decision. Yeah, cool. And so at ITV, oh, what did you, what did you yep, work on so there? I, ITV was already working in Node. Um, so I just kind of jumped right in there. They were using Mongo as the main data store. There's a little bit of um, other technologies sprinkled through, but mostly Mongo. And then there are a few Golang and Python services as well. Mm -hmm. And that's all the backend stuff. The front end, we did um, a Backbone app. We did some Angular apps. And then we did uh, a few React apps as well recently. Oh, cool. They're always like iOS clients, but I don't, I don't do that stuff. I don't know anything about iOS beyond what I learned from sitting next to the people that write it. Mm -hmm. That's the tech stack. Does that answer your question? Yeah, cool. Um, okay, so and now you are at Qualico. So yes. what, what is that? What is the company about? So um, there are these large uh, enterprise vendors that sell education software. Um, it's, it's not the stuff you use to like track the assignments for classes. It's kind of everything else. So... Uh, when you register for courses or when the back office people create their course catalog or when the professors submit grant proposals, there's just a whole suite of software needs that universities have that they either write themselves or they pay these giant vendors huge sums of money to make. Um, so Kualico makes um, open source hosted software to solve these problems. With the idea that um, since 
it's open source, universities will kind of trust us to do a good job because if we don't, they can just take it and run it themselves. Mm-hmm. And um, it'll be way less expensive and, and developed way faster than by these giant enterprises. It's still kind of getting off the ground. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how it plays out in practice. It's easy to make all these promises and say like, oh, we're way better than these Oracle-backed companies. But I think we have a chance of doing it. It's, uh, the market is ripe for disruption, I guess is how you'd say it. There are lots of solutions out there, and lots of them have some glaring weaknesses that we think we can um, help solve. Cool. That sounds, yeah. yeah, that sounds really cool. Um, and I do think that, um, it, or it's, it really sounds like, like um, the, the market is really ripe for, for disruption. But the question here is, who are the clients exactly? The schools or universities? Yes. Yep, okay. they're the schools. Yep, so the schools would, uh, would pay us some hosting fee and then they would use our stuff for their registration or, or whatever. Cool. I don't know about you, but I feel like every time I had to register as a student, I just briefly hated the school that I attended because it seemed like it never worked well and there were always delays or it dropped my classes or something terrible happened. Yeah, like, like yeah, mostly any kind of web stuff that schools do is, is really terrible. Yeah, um, and they're not, they're not experts at it. They just do it because they have to. Mm-hmm. And do, so... Um, so you said you basically uh, it just started out. Um, yes. Do you feel like are how are the schools are they already responding to like do you have a product already that you're trying to to sell them? No. So um, it's kind of a unique situation. the The company spun out of this open source foundation that was formed by a group of schools. Oh. where uh, it was 10 years ago, I think. So they were kind of rebelling against these evil vendors that they felt like were ripping them off. Oh, okay. And they, they just joined up together to make their own software. And they uh, created a few products that worked really well, and they had some struggles with some other products. Um, and then the, the foundation decided that they might be able to get more done more quickly if there was a commercial company behind things instead of all of these schools together in a big committee trying to decide what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are some existing products that we're uh, modifying a little bit to host and then there are some products that um, they tried to develop and they weren't able to finish them that we're kind of starting over on so uh, there are schools that already were involved in the process of these old products that are um, kind of signing up to be uh, customers that get a lot of say in how the product is developed okay. um, going forward so they're kind of like beta testers, customer Right, hybrids. so already built-in customers, basically. Yep. Yeah, it's really nice to have that foundation. Um, it's terrifying, too, because <laughs> there are a lot of people that are really interested in what we're doing. Like, usually in a startup, you, you build your product, and then you kind of make it successful, and then people start to care about you. And mm-hmm. here, people are, are uh, interested and also a little wary already of all the people involved in this foundation. Hmm. So we're kind of under a microscope, but it's fun um, because it's a challenge. Yeah, cool. And so how, how big is the team? So um, the team working on this product is, uh, I think there are four full-time people. Um, and then there are some people that 
one of the universities that we're partners with contribute, but the actual employees of the company, there are, there are three developers and then a project manager. Mm -hmm. So pretty small, which is also fun because um, we kind of lean on each other a lot. Mm -hmm. And what are you using there as a, uh, the, what is the tech stack? Oh man, I just spent a week answering this question. So the, the stack that all the old projects were written in was, um, I think it was Spring, it's MySQL, so Java, and, and it's all like server render and lots of XML that gets uh, dynamically turned into HTML and stuff like that. So anything that's not that um, generates some concern in the community. Mm -hmm. So when we come in and we say like, oh, we're using this thing called Node.js, people are like, JavaScript, that thing that you use to make buttons, like change colors, what? <laughs> um, so we we have to balance the desire to use like new shiny stuff with um, making sure we we let people know that we are being careful and using things that people have vetted before. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're still kind of in the process of deciding exactly what we're going to use, but it'll probably be a lot of Node. Um, there's a developer that is really interested in functional programming that. So we're we're building stuff as services, so we get some freedom to use different stacks for different services. Okay. Um, there will probably be some JVM stuff just for interoperability with existing things. Mm -hmm. We probably wouldn't use Java, uh, so probably Clojure. And then someone wrote like a little tiny service in Haskell already, just for hipster credit. <laughs> okay. So we run Haskell in production. Nice. Yeah, it's like 20 lines of code, but, <laughs> but it is in production. Cool. And yep. so do you have, so you're writing services, do you have, so do you have a lot of like um, JavaScript apps then in the front end or? Uh, the front end is all one app. So yeah, it's, it's a React app. Um, there's kind of a facade layer between all the services and the front end that knows to like proxy out to all the different backend services. And mm -hmm. then the React app just talks to that front end thing. Cool. And yeah, we, we love React. Um, it's been a joy to work with. Okay, so, so um, how, did you, how did you get into React? Like what's, what attracted you to it? Uh, I, so on the JavaScript Jabber podcast, we talked to Pete Hunt um, and Jordan I can't remember his last name. <laughs> oh no! Uh, but anyways, the some of the main React developers a little bit after they announced it, mm -hmm. and this was when um, I still thought React was just some dumb Facebook thing, like oh XML on my JavaScript—that's crazy. Yeah. Uh, but just in talking to them, they seemed really articulate and like they had thought very deeply about some problems that were kind of fundamental to the way most. To, to the way most frameworks were doing things at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I just started playing with it a little bit after that. And then this is while I was still at ITV. We used it on a couple smaller projects and then it spread. Um, mm -hmm. One of our teams used it on a pretty large project and then kind of spread through the rest of our projects, I guess. Cool. Um, and and we, we loved it. We didn't have any really major complaints. And with every other framework, we felt like the more we used it, the more we discovered things that uh, were really painful about it. 
And okay. we haven't, I mean, because React's small, there isn't a ton to, to feel pain about, but we still felt like it hadn't let us down in the way that most frameworks seem to. Yeah, it kind of it kind of sits at the at the point where where you would have the most pain. Right? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, it's a really good way to describe it. Yeah. So how how would you describe uh, React like um, in comparison to something like Angular, for instance? Um, that is also a good question. So first of all, uh, for anyone that doesn't know what React is, it's a um, it's a view layer where you structure your app as this tree of components where each component will render some children components um, and the way that you kind of determine what the component renders is you actually write out what looks like html in your javascript code um, so you, you just return the the kind of representation of what the html that your component renders is going to be and uh, the the data kind of flows down through this tree um, every time that the data in one part of the tree changes, it re-renders the whole application in that tree and below it, which seems really slow, but React has some nice abstractions to make that fast. So you basically, you don't uh, do two-way data, data binding. You just kind of change your data and re-render the part of the app that could be affected, and then it just syncs to the DOM. Is that a decent explanation? Do you have any yeah. corrections to that? Uh, no, not really. No. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> that's, so that's how I understand it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool. So um, it does a lot less for you than Angular. Like, there's no built-in HTTP stuff. There's no dependency injection. There's no controllers. There's um, there's no like promises stuff built in. Um, Angular. Uh, sorry, React might be something kind of like the directives from Angular just pulled out. Mm -hmm. Um. Which sounds crazy because then you have to re-implement all that other stuff yourself. But, uh, the, but, but do you? Well, I have an implemented dependency <laughs> injection. I mean, uh, we just like use common JS and have modules, and our app works. Like yeah. that's the. I guess that's the benefit. If you have opinions on how your your app should work that don't seem to fit with the way frameworks are encouraging you to follow, then you get to make all those decisions yourself. So, I mean, there are great HTTP libraries. There are lots of them to pick from, mm -hmm. and you get to pick whichever one you want instead of just use $HTTP. Yeah. Um, there are lots of routers. They're, they're, I mean, React doesn't solve the model layer at all, neither does Angular, though, to some degree, and there are lots of different ways to solve it. And uh, you get to pick the one that fits your application the best. Yeah, and uh, at the end of the day, for all that stuff, you can use, you're basically just writing JavaScript. You don't have to learn this kind of DSL or. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's, I, yeah, I didn't talk about that, but that is an amazing benefit of it. Um, your view layer is JavaScript. So most templates have some kind of uh, like neutered programming language where you can do for loops and if statements and stuff like that. But you can't do all of the things you could do in the programming language. You can only do whatever they provide you in this template language. And in React, your template language is JavaScript. So if you want to use a map function to like loop over some array and transform it in your template, you can, because that's JavaScript. You can do whatever you want. That's cool. Yeah, it's, it is really nice to uh, have access to the full power of the language. Yeah.
Yeah, it feels like with other languages that implement their own template templating language, it feels like now, okay, they find they, they kind of figure out, okay, uh oh, it would be cool to have this feature that is also in JavaScript, but now we have to re-implement it in that templating language or something like yeah. that. And it just Yeah, like oh go ahead. No, that, that was it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, done. so Angular has the filter thing. Yeah. Um if you wanted to make your own filter, you would have to know more about Angular than I do because <laughs> I didn't get super into it. I'm sure you could, but it wouldn't be as simple as as just using array.filter in JavaScript. Oh. And so do you use Browserify? Uh... Uh, we use Browserify in some projects. We use, well, that was at ITV. We use Webpack now, actually. Um, oh, okay. Can you can you a, talk about Webpack a little bit? Like how's <laughs> how's it different to Browserify? Because I know of it, but I have never used it before. I can try. Um, someone else set up all the Webpack stuff, so I oh, might. Okay. So you just tell using lies. the common uh, JS. But um, Webpack is kind of like Browserify in that it it can consume common JS modules and bundle them together. It has like plugins, like Browserify has transforms. Mm -hmm. So there's one for the React uh, kind of XML in your JavaScript syntax that transforms it into JavaScript. Um, the thing that I like about Webpack is it seems like it's replaced. Uh, before, I would always have like Gulp and Browserify or Grunt and Browserify. Mm -hmm. And with Webpack, it seems like I can just run Webpack without a Grunt file or a Gulp file mm -hmm. to do all my building and watching. Mm -hmm. um, there's a, like a webpack specific config that you can set up and and so it kind of consolidates the number of tools. Webpack has some cool stuff that you can take advantage of like uh it has live reload stuff. I think Browserify probably does too. Webpack has hot module reloading though. So if you change a module in your build, it will um kind of hot swap out that module while trying to keep all of the data in the module the same still. And that's really cool for React. So if you change a component, um, it keeps all the state and the properties on that component, but just changes what that component renders or whatever, whatever you changed. That sounds um, cool. It's cool. It's magical. And it can break in really weird ways because <laughs> it's doing some crazy stuff on the back end to make it work. Uh-huh. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not the Webpack expert. I think Webpack can do more stuff with CSS and HTML as well. Like okay, so that's what concepts. I wanted to ask just now because uh, when you when you don't use Gulp or Grunt for the JavaScript, you will still need it for CSS in most cases, I thought. But if yeah, Webpack can do it as well? I think it can. This is passing the bounds of my experience, though. So maybe I'll just defer to someone smarter than I am to correct me. <laughs> okay uh cool okay and so what kind of uh what kind of application architecture did you guys go for then um for the rest basically you know like how, how do you organize your component components and when this sure. when this application grows now how do you manage that uh this is a really good question and this is the strength and the weakness of React. If we were using something like Ember, um, where it's very opinionated, and they, I mean, Ember provides Ember CLI. So you yeah. have a build tool that you use that kind of prescribes some directory structure to application. Mm -hmm. Then we would just do what it said, and we wouldn't really have to think about it. Um, since React doesn't give us any of that, we have to make those decisions, and we risk making them really poorly. 
which is kind of scary, but kind of cool too. I, I would always rather wrestle with my poor decisions than try and understand someone else's decisions because I am prideful, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I don't know. But to answer the actual question you asked, uh, right now we, um, we kind of structure the major parts of the application as components themselves. So uh, there's a part where you can create courses or something like that. And that whole course creation thing, which contains many screens and many routes below it, will be a component. And we just render that component um, in, inside a, a React app. So right now they're all in the same repository. Um, we could split them out into different repositories and then just uh, require them in, in our in like our main index.jsx file or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then it would just get built in by Webpack. Mm -hmm. um, I like the idea of splitting things out by application functionality instead of kind of the Rails style of you put all of your views in one folder and all of your models in another folder. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. I think it makes it easier to find related things. Um, yeah. yeah, I like that approach as well. It it makes it tricky to know where to put stuff that seems like it belongs to multiple things though. That's the downside. So okay. uh, like if we have some stores that handle user data and there are lots of components that need user data, mm -hmm. um, then we either have to keep that in a separate module that we like pass into to both of the components that need the user store. Um, like you can't bundle it together with those components, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. Otherwise you wouldn't keep your code try yes yeah. yeah yep um yeah so that's kind of the main architecture we are using uh react router which is a router inspired by the ember router mm -hmm. which is amazing and it was the thing i liked most about ember so it's really nice to see it in react yeah cool um it lets you structure your application as this kind of series of nested states mm -hmm. where each state maps to some portion of a url it's really hard to explain <laughs> in words. Um, but say you go to, you're making a to-do list and you have a, a screen in your app that lists all the to-do items. And then you want to show the details of an individual to-do item when you click on it. Mm -hmm. um, you would have like slash to-dos as your main route. And then you would nest inside that to-dos route like a slash to-do ID route that would be responsible for rendering the individual to-do item. And uh, in your templates, you can kind of yield to your child routes. Um, it's kind of like yielding in Rails or uh, I can't remember what it's called in, in Django. But you have this concept of like, I render what I know about. And then if, there are any of, if, if anything is my child, it can just stick itself in right here and render itself there. Hmm. And it makes it really easy to build these kind of hierarchical URL, URL, uh, UIs that map nicely to URLs. Yeah. That's uh, that's 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 really cool. Um, mm -hmm. Ryan Florence did that, right? That yep. React router. Yeah. Yep, he's my buddy. He lives pretty close to me, so oh, cool. I get to bug him. It's really nice when I have questions about it. Nice. I I get to ask him. <laughs> he used to be a, a big into Ember before, right? Yeah, he did. Um, I think he he's a very direct person. <laughs> he's not. 
he doesn't uh he he just says what he thinks without trying to uh no take a lot of time to like say it in ways that will make people feel good mm-hmm. so i think he kind of ruffled some feathers when he started talking about react instead of ember um what do you mean but, why because he, because he was talking bad about ember or well he wasn't talking bad about ember but i think people were reading i mean he was a huge proponent of ember yeah and he uh he switched to react and people were like what's going on here and then he was all of a sudden talking about how amazing react is and then uh people kind of read implicitly if you're saying this thing is amazing and you're not saying ember is amazing then you're saying ember is bad and um so it's just weird stuff that happens in tech when people identify with a group instead of with making the best decisions for their products i guess mm-hmm. i don't know i'm 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 totally mercenary if something better than react comes along then i will switch to it and i will not look back like <laughs> yeah i don't care i mean Same i feel here. like i'm in some ways part of the react community but if there's something that i like more then i'll see ya <laughs> like i'll i'll be there <laughs> yeah well my impression um is that the the ember community is like they're kind of they're kind of very tight, very friendly. They are they're very tight knit. Yes. Yeah, very friendly to each other and very tight, very helpful to each other and stuff. And and I think if if you are in a community like that and you are somebody who has you know um, who's well known or has a voice, and he and he didn't just suddenly switches to a different. It's it's just very. I think it's for the community. It's just it's very noticeable. Yeah, it's like a signal, like yeah. that things are wrong maybe in some way, and then that could make people wary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can see that. Interesting. Um, okay, did you did you do you know about uh, Flux? Yes. Uh, well, I think I do. I don't know. <laughs> Nobody knows Flux really. Maybe. Yeah, but uh, but are you basically uh, so are you applying that idea to your architecture then or? We are still exploring it a little bit. So Flux, um, let me see if I can explain what I think it is, Mm -hmm. and then you can correct my horrible mistakes. (laughs) So (laughs) since React doesn't give you anything to handle models or data from the server or or anything, it just renders whatever you give it. Um, Flux is this pattern that was developed where your components will um, They'll, they'll, they won't modify data themselves. The components will create actions. And then you have um, this dispatcher that kind of aggregates all of the actions together and knows. So if your component creates like a create to-do list item action, it'll include the to-do list thing that it created and it'll just send it off the dispatcher will know to like synchronize that to the server so send a post request and then the dispatcher forwards actions onto these things called stores which are basically your your client side like data stores Um, and then you'll have a to-do list store that will um, just keep track of all of the to-do list items and then um, when changes happen to the store the stores just notify everyone that cares about anything in them that they changed. They don't actually say what changed. They don't, like you won't get an, a notification that a new item was added. You'll just get a changed thing. And then if you care about the data in the store, you'll just query the data that you want from the store again and re-render yourself. 
Mm -hmm. um, and that works nicely with React because if nothing changed that you care about in the store, like a, a new to-do list item was added, but you are an individual to-do list item renderer and your item wasn't changed or modified or whatever, you'll just get that same item and then re-render yourself and React will make that fast because nothing in the DOM needs to change. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of this circular flow where components create actions, actions um, go to stores, stores notify the components that they changed, and then the components pull down the data and re-render themselves. Yeah. Does that sound kind of accurate? Yeah, I mean, I don't know uh, tons about it. I just, I just saw the video when they were talking about it at F8. Actually, I saw it in, a week ago or so. Sure. And, yeah, and uh, but it sounds, it sounds, uh, it sounds right, and, and like how I understood it as well. <clears throat> when I, when I saw the video, I was just very, um, um, just right away, I, I thought, I thought that this makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Because especially how they presented it, because they were presenting like the MVC kind of, they had like a little uh, like infograph or like a slide, you know, where they had mm -hmm. they had basically this graphic where you could, so MVC was basically modeled and it goes into the view. And then if you have a lot of views, you have like tons of views and the views basically, in the, so, the, so the model basically talks to the, to their view and then the view talks back to the model or can and 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 different views can 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 speak to different models maybe and all this kind of stuff so you have like those all those arrows that go back and forth and back and forth and you and it's very hard especially if you have a really big application to find find those kind of loops that could be in there for instance um and just it's just very hard to reason about that in your head and when you look at flux it's just always one direction and it's very easy to reason about it. And then if you have a big flux app, then um, it's, it's just for every component, it's just exactly the same thing that happens. And, and you don't, you can't create those, um, those hard to detect kind of loops in the communication between view and data store, something like that. Yeah. It, and and I think that was my reaction on seeing it too. Like it just makes sense, and it doesn't seem terribly complex, which is nice. Yeah. Um, it in some ways it doesn't feel like as much of a leap forward as React does. It uh, I have some friends that did like Adobe Flex back in the day, and they say that this is the main paradigm that Flex used for their data modeling and stuff too. Ah. So it it and you're still using kind of callbacks everywhere to to register yourself with stores like it feels um it feels really solid but not uh it's it's not a new solution in some ways um so we're using flux in some parts but we're exploring other things with uh using cursors from immutable js to manage the data instead of um this flux architecture with dispatchers and oh, things so, like that so what are what are those curs cursors so yeah, cursors. cursors. So Immutable JS is a library from Facebook that lets you create um, persistent data structures. So basically, you make an array, you can't change that array anymore. If you modify the array, you actually get a new copy back mm -hmm. that has the, the modification in the new copy. Um, cursors are kind of like lenses to portions of a data structure. So okay. you can, uh, let's see, if you have, um, 
you have like an array of user objects or something, you could then create a cursor to a specific user object, um, which is, and, and then you can pass that down to a component, and then that component can update the cursor. So, so the component only knows about the data that it kind of owns and cares about, and then it updates the cursor, um, which triggers an update to this parent object that owns it, basically. So it's kind of another way to get the loop of components making changes to data, which propagate down through the rest of the app, um, but in a different model. I, I guess I'm explaining it poorly because it's kind of, I think that means I don't understand it well enough if I can't explain it clearly. But <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, it, it's basically a way to pass components the data that they need and allow them to actually modify that data while propagating those modifications through the rest of the app. So, and what happens if they modify the data? So, if if it's an arrays, so what does Immutable JS then also make another copy with the new so, data? So, yeah, when you um, it it will create a copy with the change, and 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 there's a way to hook into the creation of the copy, where where any cursor created by any child portion of your data structure will like call this parent callback and then you can do whatever you want with the change data structure um, you could you could detect what changed and sync the change to the server and then you can kind of uh, notify the rest of your application or just re-render your whole application and pass in the whole data structure and then each portion of the application will know to kind of make a cursor to the part it needs and pass it down to the children that need that cursor hmm. um, yeah, so it's it's another way to get that loop of you make changes and then changes flow through the whole application. Ah, cool. Um, but um, we haven't, I don't think we've used it enough to say this is the way we should build applications. It's just something we're still exploring as an alternative to Flux. It's kind of how, uh, in some ways, it's how Ohm does it, mm -hmm. the closure script wrapper around React. It's yeah. kind of where we got the idea. Um, that's also and where Facebook got the idea, I think. Oh yeah, I didn't know that. Cool. <laughs> yeah, I think because I, I heard, I heard, um, what's his name? Something Nolan. David was, Nolan. David Nolan. Yeah. He was, yeah. Heard him. Was he on your podcast as well? Uh, he's been on a bunch of them. He's like made the circuit. Oh okay. Yeah. So I heard some podcasts. Actually, it was um, giant robots smashing yeah into, uh, the giant i listened robots. to that one that was a great episode yeah it was a great episode and uh so they went really in depth in that and he explained it really well how this whole immutable data thing works and um yeah and i think that basically that was there before and now suddenly there's there's uh i mean i guess uh, he also started using um closure with react or something like that mm -hmm. and then the immutable data feature came from the closure part or was it something else? I'm, I'm not 100% yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah, from the closure part and now <clears throat> basically Facebook made immutable JS so you don't have to use closure. You can also just use JavaScript. For me, it's always uh, when I when I hear, I understand that it's useful and, and also what I also like about immutable data is that you have this automatic timeline that you that you can go back on basically yeah was one of the features that he highlighted um but the question for me is are you are you creating a lot of data in memory then 
Is this so? Yeah, that is a problem. If every change that you make to any portion of your data structure creates a whole new copy of it, um, it would take a lot of memory. Mm -hmm. The way that immutable data structures are implemented, though, is they actually they they look like they're new copies of all of the data, but they actually share most of the data structure, and only the part that changed will be new in memory. Uh, um, so it is a lot more efficient than it appears. I mean, you could still run into memory problems if you have a super long-lived application and you're keeping every single change that ever happened in memory. Mm. Um, but it is a lot more efficient than just copying everything every time. Okay, now that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, yeah. that's kind of the magic of um, of persistent data structures and why if you try... So <laughs> a couple of years ago, I tried to do something like this in JavaScript without actual persistent data structures mm -hmm. and i just like json.stringify json.parsed everything to copy it mm -hmm. and it didn't work very well because <laughs> i was creating new copies of everything in the structure every time and yeah. it got kind of ugly yeah i can imagine but if you have smart people that figure out how to do that for you then then you get all the benefits it's kind of it's kind of like uh how git works because git also just uh basically well, no, actually, no, because well, not locally, but yeah, but it also reuses basically reuses all the stuff that's the same, and only the files that change get copied and oh, cool. stored. Yeah, yeah, that, it's actually very similar, kind of. Yeah. Uh, cool. So basically, you you guys are just uh, yeah, you're just working with with React in the front end. That's that sounds exciting. Mm -hmm. I just I just got recently uh, very excited about React as well. When after I saw that video, I was just like, okay, now I understand it, and uh, I got very hype about it because I'm I I have kind of uh, I've never used it yet though. Uh, I'm just like I, I still have to find a project where I can uh, sure or the, uh, the have to yeah create the opportunity for myself to actually uh, play around with it or use it in a project. But um, uh, for me, I got excited about it because it because i feel like i can i can it makes it easier for me to think about the application because the mvc thing like i never i never i never read the you know the big programming pattern books and uh, i don't I, I come from i have like a uh, computer science background but i never got so deep into the theories and stuff like that so mvc sure. so i just learned about mvc from from the front end uh libraries and got in like try to read up on it on it after the fact but the problem is that mvc doesn't really fit that well onto what you're trying to do so it was always hard at least not always and it was always hard and everybody calls it something else it's mc whatever mc star mc uh, MV, yeah. MV, blah, 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 blah. So, um, yeah, so I always found it really hard to to think about JavaScript and the applications that way. And React kind of just throws everything away and says, hey, we're just uh, doing components here and we're just re-rendering the app every time. And uh, that's that. And then you have some JavaScript. You can write your JavaScript. You can organize it however you want to. And uh, common JS modules. And this... It kind of feels like it's 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 maybe maybe more natural to what we're trying to do in the front end 
I don't know. But, um, but it feels like it, a like it a little bit. Yeah, I agree with you in that it seems like a different, uh, it comes from a different like family tree than all the MVC solutions that kind of have sprung up after Backbone. And it's, I guess I'm, I'm kind of on the hype train with React, but I'm wary about being too hyped up about it because every technology has some downsides. Mm. And I feel like everything I've ever used, eventually I've hit a point where it's like, okay, this thing about this technology is really annoying to work with. Or for this problem, it's, I probably, I wish I had used something else. Mm. Um, since I haven't really hit that point with React yet, I'm scared that it's kind of looming in the future. And I'll just run into the wall someday. It will come at some point. For sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but for now, it's great. <laughs> cool. Well, actually, yesterday I listened to uh, the latest Changelog podcast, and there they had Yehuda Katz and and the Tomster, Tom Dale, Tom Dale, yeah. <laughs> the Tomster himself on there, and uh, they were talking, you know, about the road towards Ember 2.0. And they were also talking about React because um, they always they always steal the good things of other frameworks and stuff like that, and they yeah they pride themselves on it, and it's cool. And um, so basically, what they they're also going to basically they're going to implement implement the virtual DOM and um, for for their for their views. And what was interesting was that they still want to have the option though to to do two way data binding. Binding, because th there might—that's uh, what Yehuda said. Basically, there might they, there might be uh, use cases where two-way data binding is like perfect or exactly what you need, and and for other things the virtual DOM is better. So sure. And he was kind of going on a little mini rant about how he thinks it's or kind of thinks it's sad that people always jump on the next thing that is. That seems to be the best solution until they run into those limits that we just talked about. Instead of mm -hmm. thinking, how can you combine them, you know, for the for the right use cases? Sure. I I don't really have uh, any examples in my head. He also, I think, didn't mention any where now two-way data binding could be better uh, than the virtual DOM. Um, but yeah, I think that makes sense. You know, maybe you maybe you have to combine those things at some point. So. One example where it gets a little painful is with forms. Um, if you have complex forms, so you can, uh, in React, you can bind change events to form elements. So uh, on every input, you'd have a change event that would update some value of your state. And then when they submit it, that's when you'd kind of send everything off to wherever it goes. But it gets a little clunky to have all these different change handlers on all these different elements. Um, if you had two way data binding, you just bind a chunk of your state to the value of that field. And I think React actually has some link helpers that kind of implement two-way data binding through doing these change handlers for you automatically. So it's not it's not kind of generic two-way data binding, data binding like these other frameworks have, but they do recognize that um, in some situations you might have cleaner code through through this two-way data binding stuff. Hmm. It's I think the insight is just you opt into it instead of opting out of it. Right. Um, and, okay. and you explicitly choose you're using two-way data binding now. So beware, like you might have cascading changes and 
uh, it's kind of like a warning sign that things things could happen that wouldn't happen with regular React. Mm. Okay. But yeah, I I, I really like um, what Tom and Yehuda have been talking about. It's cool to see them look at React and instead of uh, I mean, there is some competition between frameworks, and everyone kind of wants to make the best framework and wants to get the most mindshare. But it's cool to see um, people collaborate on ideas and see these ideas kind of cross-pollinate between frameworks. Like the, like I said, the router that I use in React is from Ember. And if Ember did not exist, then React would be a lot worse off because of it. Yeah. And hopefully um, when the virtual DOM stuff makes it into Ember, then Ember will be a lot better off because React exists. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Cool. Okay, so I wanted to ask you about uh, JavaScript Jabber. So, so, sure. Yeah. So how? I will reveal all. Yeah. Ask me. Your, your <laughs> reveal everything. Questions. Okay. Yeah. Uh, um, Chuck is a robot. He is not an actual human being. <laughs> I was wondering <laughs> about that. Yeah. Um, so how did this all come together? Have you been part of it from the start? Yeah, I think Chuck and I are actually. And maybe AJ are the only ones that have been there since the beginning. Mm -hmm. So I was a longtime listener to Ruby Rogues. Um, and I, I loved that podcast. I still do. They have incredible insights into software in general, even if you don't write Ruby. Oh, cool. Um, and I just wanted to. So I was involved in a local JavaScript group called Utah.js. I, I still am. And uh, we were talking about starting up our own podcast, just the Utah JS like meetup podcast for the Utah JS community specifically. Um, and I kind of reached out to some people to see if they'd be interested in starting it with me. And then Chuck just emailed me and said that he was thinking about starting a JavaScript podcast uh, and said we should just combine our efforts. So it kind of came out of that. Um, I think Yehuda was actually one of the original co-hosts. Uh, for several episodes, the the very first ones, Yehuda's on there hmm. um, as a as like a host, not as a guest. Mm -hmm. um, and then he dropped out just because he's pretty busy on the, yeah. the the Rails core team, the jQuery core team, the Ember core team, co-founding a startup, TC and all the other stuff he does. Yeah, well. TC. Yeah, he's <laughs> incredible. Yeah, I'm astonished at his capacity to do amazing stuff. Yeah, me too. Um, yeah, so it just came out of there. We just I wanted to start a local podcast, and Chuck uh, wanted to add to his growing media empire. Yeah. So ha did he have this devchat.tv thing going on back then already? No, I think it was an idea, but I think starting another podcast beside, before he was like the Ruby Rogues guy, and I think JavaScript Jabber kind of made him be the podcast guy. He has a whole bunch of them now. Yeah, Angular and iOS and freelancing and yeah, I think he even wants to do more. But Crazy. yeah, I think JavaScript Jabber was like the second one that kind of started the the trend of doing more for him. At least the empire. Yes. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Soon we will all be employees of the empire. Okay. <laughs> so you got. So you. That explains also, I guess, that you're basically all from Utah. Yeah, yeah, because it was just like, who do we know in yeah. Utah? That I mean, because we wanted to, it's not, uh, how do I explain it? 
it's not like we are trying to be exclusive. It was just we like looked around a room because that's where we were talking about starting the podcast. There actually was a guy named Joe. I think he actually lives in Malaysia. He's one of the um, one of those developers that like moves around the world and just works remotely all the time. He was a, a co-host for a while. And I think he had to drop out because of uh, some of the time zone differences and just he had a hard time um, with some of the the recording times that the guests could make. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it has been mostly Utah people just because of the way it started. Yeah, cool. But I, I mean, there's there's like a Utah JavaScript mafia. Like, yeah, it seems the community that way. here is is pretty great. <laughs> For especially for the size of the population, I think I I feel really lucky to be in Utah mm -hmm. um, because there are lots of smart people that I learn stuff from all the time. Yeah, it's very interesting, and and a lot of Angular people. Oh man, yeah, Utah is <laughs> Angular central. The yeah. Angular meetups here are way bigger than any of the general purpose JavaScript meetups or pretty much any other technology meetups. Wow. Yeah, and then ng-conf and all mm -hmm. that stuff. Yeah, did that happen in Utah as well? Uh, yeah, so oh. Joe Eames and Aaron Frost have both been on the show a lot. And mm -hmm. they, uh, you, I mean, you should probably ask them for the real story. My impression of the story is they um, were heavy users of Angular and that they had some kind of connection with the team. And there wasn't an Angular conference yet, so they just started one. I'm not sure why uh, there's so much interest specifically in Utah, but I know that uh, just it was the same kind of thing. Like some people talked about making an Angular conference and it was just it was a group of people that were sitting in a room in Utah that did it. So that's why it's in Utah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's awesome. Cool. Yeah. You uh, got to do that for Stuttgart now. Uh, um, actually, uh I, I work in, in, in a little, well, it's not that, well, yeah, a little town in, that's further up, uh, Karlsruhe, and I'm organizing Karlsruhe JS over there. That's awesome. Yeah. It was, it's actually, it started out pretty cool because it's a, it's a kind of technical city here in Germany because they have a mm. big technical university or multiple even. And we they started out we started out with like fifty and then seventy people coming to those. Wow. Yeah, but it kind of went down now. I I'm I'm tr I'm gonna tr I have to try to find out. Like it's it went down to like thirty. I have to try to find out what the reason is. I am very clueless <laughs> about that. We did like a we did like a summer break because nobody's there in summer really. Mm -hmm. And since then, it kind of went down. Because of the amazing German vacation policies, <laughs> which I'm so jealous of. Uh, yeah, that's exactly that's it. Awesome. Yeah, everybody goes, you know, <laughs> like it's kind of everything calms down in summer. Like people take their vacation during summer mostly. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. How much vacation do you guys have? Uh, we have the whole like take as much as you want thing, which oh. I think is... I don't think it works very well um, because people because, don't really take a lot. Yeah, because people don't take it because there's a mm -hmm. culture in the United States of, I mean, even if, so most places don't have that much vacation. And then even if you have as much as you want, you're like letting your team down and mm -hmm. leaving people behind to care for the stuff you're not working on. Mm -hmm. So I think I've heard other people say this and it would be interesting to try it is 
it'd be cool if you had a, like a mandatory minimum vacation. Like you have to go on vacation this many days in the year or I don't know what the punishment would be like to make people do it, but yeah, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean here, here... or just move to Germany and it'd be yeah, cool. or just do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, we we have we have this. I think mostly mostly it's between twenty twenty five and thirty days that you that you just have to take off, and um, and people mostly just make sure they use them all up, and that's that. You know? Yeah, I've. I've I've had as much vacation as you want for most of my career and there's no way I've ever gotten close to 20 days of vacation in a year which is kind of sad. Hmm. Maybe I'll just I'll just push it and see how long I can go on vacation well, you... until somebody says something. <laughs> you said as much as I want. Exactly. I think I think you should do it or just give yourself, you know, a budget like a fair budget what you think is fair like make it 25 sure. or something and then plan it out at the beginning sure. of the year. Tell I'll everybody. try that. Because that's how basically you have to do it here, you know. You have to you have to know beforehand. I mean, sure, you you know, if you want like one or two days off here or there, that you can do that quickly. But if you want to have like your two weeks or three weeks in the summer to fly, I don't know where to, um, then you have to you have to really you have to talk to your team or manager or whatever and figure that out how this works best for everybody. But yeah, you got a plan for sure. Yeah. I'll yeah. Uh, okay. So, so you guys, uh, yeah. So you met all in Utah, and you started mm -hmm. Utah Jabber, basically JavaScript. <laughs> yeah. Yep. But you, you, you really like I. I started listening at the at a point where uh, there was a lot of talk, a lot of discussion about Backbone versus Ember. Uh huh. I think it was Backbone versus Ember, where you had Jeremy uh, and Yehuda on the podcast yeah, at the same time. I remember that episode. <laughs> it, <laughs> it was, was kind of contentious. <laughs> it, what does contentious mean? Uh, like a lot of conflict. Yeah, yeah. That it was really, but it was it made it, it made it a great show. I mean, honestly, back then I really didn't understand half of what they were saying. Because I was not using MVC in front of it. I had no idea how it works and what to do and blah, blah, blah. Sure. But at the same time, I was super interested in it and I, I wanted to learn about it. And um, I took, I guess I took a few things um, with it, with me from them. But it was just super interesting to hear them talk and, you know, the level of uh, uh, smartness <laughs> that was yeah, happening yeah, was... there was just uh, was just amazing. It was exciting to to listen to this kind of... Uh, exchange they were having so that's when i when i started uh, listening and i was wondering how um uh, basically everybody comes on javascript jabber who you know everybody who just does something noticeable in javascript mm -hmm. at least it seems like that so uh who who gets those people on and how so i think part of the success of javascript jabber is not because we are good i think it's just because we were one of the first ones mm. um i i feel like i listen to a lot of podcasts and i'm consistently impressed by how awesome other people are so sometimes i feel a little bad about like how unprepared i feel or dumb <laughs> i sound or whatever but um it's it's just a combination of the hosts uh hearing about stuff and then 
reaching out to them. And it's kind of a chicken and egg thing now since since it is sort of well known. Um, mm-hmm. It's easier to get people on. And and I'm not really sure like how that starts, but but now the ball is kind of rolling, so it's a little bit easier. Um, it's also part of the benefit of having multiple hosts. We're all interested in different things, and we all have different dream guests that we'd want to get on to the show. And um, so it keeps a nice variety, basically. So if I haven't heard of something, chances that something new that everybody's excited about, chances are one of the other hosts will have heard of it and will suggest a guest. Mm-hmm. Um, and then somebody just reaches out to him and, and asks him. Cool. I don't know. It's it that just, part's not very exciting. It just kind of happens. It just works, basically. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's it's not helpful if you want to start a new podcast. But yeah, yeah. Step one: like pick an area that people are interested in that is underserved. But exactly, that's hard to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's also hard to be to 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 have your interests aligned with that, right? Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Well, basically, yeah. That that's that's basically what I thought. Um, you were you were the first ones on the scene, and now it's popular. And uh, yeah, people people come on. Like there were you had the Facebook guys on. You had the mm-hmm. you had the Brandon Ang- Ike. That was like the biggest. Oh, Brandon Ike was on so far. Yeah. <laughs> And you can't get much bigger in JavaScript than him. I guess. Uh, and you had the Google guys are like on there all the time, it seems like. Well, actually, yeah. n- not not really. But there was this, it was, fu- there was this funny uh, thing that happened where you had, I think. Like five Angular podcasts yeah. in a yeah. row. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then there was, after that, you had like an Ember guy on and he was. He said he was happy to be on the Angular podcast or something like that. Yeah, the funny. funny thing is Chuck started an Angular podcast like a month after that. So <laughs> Yeah, I know. I, I actually I, I subscribed to that one as well. Oh, cool. Yeah. So I think um, that maybe showed there was demand and then uh it's a, it's, I, I, it's I like oh go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just gonna say I like being able to talk about anything. Um if it was the React podcast, I would get bored, even though I really like React. Mm. so i i really value being able to talk to people doing server-side stuff or people doing client-side stuff or people doing like crazy web audio api stuff that's part of what is exciting to me is you hear about the whole breadth of things happening in javascript yeah for sure and and that's what's cool about javascript java i think because you really learn you because you always hear about those things that those people do that come on and then uh, you just have to you have the opportunity to just sit back and listen to them talk about it to get a little bit more knowledge you don't have to sit down and read about it necessarily that's what i like about it yeah you know? for um, instance i thought it was great uh you had the ionic guys and the famous that was also super interesting it seems like they're doing a lot of very advanced like really uh important things there i think like to just make the kind of richness possible on mobile it's just are you still there yeah i'm still there hello 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 
Hey. Hey. Sorry, I don't know what's going on. Uh, you, you cut out where you were talking about the interesting and advanced things that the Ionic and famous people were doing. Yeah, exactly. So I feel like uh, I found that very interesting because they are actually doing really new things, like making all those rich experiences work uh, on mobile in the web browser. Um, I think is super important to kind of push the web forward to just have this opportunity to do that. And uh, that was uh, yeah, it was very enlightening, very interesting to, to hear them talk. Yeah. And so the secret of, of me being on JavaScript Jabber is that I generally have no idea what I'm talking about, but I can fake it well enough. Like, I, I hope no one thinks that I'm an expert on everything that we've had a guest come on and talk about. Generally, I'm learning about it just as much as the people listening to the podcast are. Mm -hmm. um, but I just get to ask them questions in real time, which is fun. Yeah, that's great. I mean, they come on to explain it to people. Yeah, right? so. yeah and it makes it easy. I don't, have to, I don't have to be an expert. I can play the, the role of an interested but uh, like new person which is what I am most of the time. Yeah, exactly. So basically, <laughs> actually, you could make it worse if you were too prepared. Oh, no, you're right. Okay, I'll... Right? Because I'll, <laughs> So actually, <laughs> not preparing is actually preparing because... It's the best preparation. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> I think that applies I changed to your everything life else in life, right? Sorry? Should I... Maybe that applies to other things in life, too. Maybe. <laughs> i'll try that for like a conference talk or something <laughs> yeah that, maybe that it might could, not work could could be difficult <laughs> unless you want to find out a lot of things from the audience oh yeah that would be cool yeah, it seems just, like you'd have to be famous to do that though just pull some stunt where you say like i didn't prepare a talk what do you want to talk about and people will still like you enough to be interested in that yeah like maybe i don't know Yes, like Brendan and I could do that because people just would want to oh, yeah. talk to him about stuff that's in his head. Yeah, exactly. I think that it's totally valid to do that. But if in order to do that, you really have to be somebody who is kind of super in-depth into something since like just is working on one product or one thing since three, four, five years or whatever. Yeah. Because I just, I just heard today, I just heard this interview with... Um, the guy who uh, makes or is the producer of this iOS game called Monument Valley. Do you know about that game? I have heard of it and I haven't played it. Okay, so it's it's a beautiful game and everything, and has a lot of media attention and everything. So, and he basically tells the story on there, and that was very interesting. And he was just saying that he was he had a conference talk. And he didn't have any time to prepare for it. Uh, because he has to run around everywhere, give interviews and stuff because because of the game, and so all he did was he just put it, he made ten slides and he put uh, pictures on there uh, from the game, you know, from the artwork, and then put one word on each slide, and he just went to that conference and he took the word that was on there and just uh, improvised his talk, and he he could do that of course because he's been working on that game. Like he wouldn't do, he, he wasn't doing anything else besides working on that game since, I don't know, a couple of years or something like that. And it was just like the only thing he would ever think about since a while. So basically, um, in that case, you don't have to prepare, of course. You can just go ahead and talk about if that's what they want to hear about, of course, you know? Yeah. Yeah. 
I think John Carmack does something similar. He's the guy behind id Software and Doom and all those games. And he just sits on a stage and talks for a few hours every year at QuakeConf about these crazy technical things that are in his head. Cool. And it's always fascinating. Awesome. I'm not there yet, though. <laughs> I don't yeah. think I'll ever be there. Me neither. <laughs> hey, but maybe uh, maybe React is your thing. In two years, you'll be oh, man. touring the world. Knowing JavaScript, probably in two years, there will be another thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. Okay, I would like to go into the picks now. What, sure. What is your first pick? Uh, my first pick is a thing called B and Puppy Cat. Let me paste it in chat first. Oh, I saw you tweet about it. Okay, there it is. So it's made... Um, do you know what Adventure Time is? Uh, yeah. Okay, so it's made... It's a, it's a cartoon made by one of the artists from Adventure Time, I, I think. Okay. Um, and she just made it kind of in her free time. Uh, and it went really viral on the internet because it's amazing. <laughs> and then they did a Kickstarter and raised a bunch of money and went off and made a whole new season of it. So it was just a one-off cartoon. Um, so my first pick is the next season of Bee and Puppy Cat. And it's this amazing mix of, of like childlike happiness and humor that uh, it's, it's for adults, but it's not like... Um, it, it feels, I don't know, the best way to describe it, I guess, is, is childlike, but for adults. It just feels really happy and amazing. Yeah, cool. I, I'm really bad at describing it, but it's great. It's hard That's, to describe, though. I I, I saw you tweeted. I saw you tweet about it, and I checked it out, and I was I, I was mind was a little weird. bit blown. Yeah, uh, if you, I, I think the media that I'm attracted to is generally like a little bit weird, and I just like stuff that seems kind of out of left field to me. Like, just makes something in my brain feel happy. Mm -hmm. um, and this has enough weird that it's exciting, but it's not weird for the sake of weird. Yeah, but and it, it it reminded me of manga a little bit, like manga, you know, yeah, or not, yeah. not necessarily manga, but the Japanese kind of comic style that is for kids. I don't know yeah. if they call that manga as well. I have no idea, but yeah, that's I what it reminds me. Like it has a very Japanese feel. Um, yeah, it's definitely influenced by it. Yeah. But it, but then you can you also see and also how it's written and and, and everything. It's uh, you can see the Western influences. So it's I, I feel like the story has nothing really. Well, maybe it's also influenced like uh, how the story is told. Yeah, I think there's a lot of Japanese influence, but it's it's definitely a mixture, and that makes it very interesting. I thought it yeah. was really cool. Yeah. And crazy, crazy as well. Yeah, definitely crazy. <laughs> yeah. I think it's the kind of thing that uh, you might just really not like, and that's totally fine. But if you like it, then totally. you'll probably really like it. Yeah. Cool. Okay, so uh, my first pick is... It's, not, it's, not, it's nothing new at all. But um, it's just something that today when I was browsing Twitter, I just clicked on a link again and I thought I wanted to pick it. It's uh, Signal versus Noise, the blog from 37 Signals. Mm. I guess they're called Basecamp now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, sorry? 
it's hard to keep up with with them sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just like their I just like their blog because they 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 always have very interesting things to say there. It's always thoughtful. It's um, and I guess you know everybody knows them. Many people know them there. Everybody's a fan or so or whatever. And they made Basecamp and everything. But <clears throat> yeah, I've always been. I I love the books they 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 wrote and uh, yeah, just wanted to make that a pick because I haven't been on their blog in a long time. And I found some some nice posts again today. And oh, cool! Yeah, just they just posted. What was it? A picture, just a picture that kind of illustrates how less works well. And it was a picture of somebody holding an umbrella and in the rain, right? And it protects that person from from the rain. Uh huh. And then next to that person, there was a, a another guy, and he also had an umbrella. And it was protecting him from the rain. But at the same time, he had, like, the umbrella had, like, a knife hanging off of it and, like, <laughs> ten different things. And and that person had, like, a speech bubble and it said, but mine has more features. <laughs> and all it said underneath it says, uh, less works, which which I thought was cool. So what's your second pick? Uh, my second pick is... An essay from Medium. I think it made the rounds on like Hacker News and Twitter a while ago, but I still really like it. It's called the sixth stages or the sixth stage of grief is retro computing. Um, it's kind of a long read. It took me like half an hour to get through it, so it's longer than your typical blog post. But it's the writing is beautiful in it. It's written by this guy that's kind of uh, mourning the death of a friend that was really influential in his early life. Um, and helped get him into computers. Hmm. And he does it through um, looking at emulating all these old operating systems through computing history. So uh, he talks about kind of the history of the Amiga and shows like how he has an Amiga emulator up and running on his computer and some of the software that runs on it. And then talks about um, the the role that the Amiga played in his friend's life. And it it, it really links the very personal relationship that he had with this guy um, with what was happening in the technology industry at the time. And it, it talks a lot about how uh, all these amazing technical achievements of the time are, are kind of all dust now, right? They're all garbage. Like no one's going to run like your Commodore software from the seventies or eighties or whatever. No one cares about it anymore. Um, but you can still look back on it and, and learn things from it in some way. And it, it's kind of like, I don't know, this gets kind of morbid, but like when we die, there's going to be a small number of people that maybe will remember us. But, but most, I mean, most of the people you ever meet are not going to remember you once you're gone. But how do you kind of memorialize things that are gone? Hmm. Um, yeah, it was, it made me think. It was really well written too. Cool. Sounds super interesting. Yeah, it, it was great. I'm going to check it out. Um, my second pick is um, actually the podcast episode I was just talking about um, where they interview this guy who is the producer of Monument Valley. Um, <clears throat> I thought their story was just very interesting. Um, 
you know how they got into well this guy's story is interesting because he 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 used to be like super into games when he was a kid and he was really really uh he just wanted to be in the game industry and he um back in the day there were not a lot of opportunities for people so what he did as a kid after school or something as he really wanted to get this apprentice no um what's it internship internship yeah, yeah internship at this uh, games company and so they said well you know um we we have a five a five week waiting list and the internship is for one week so you have to wait for five weeks so he said okay put me on the list and he went home and then when he went after he went home he he would call them every friday to see if somebody dropped out oh wow and if he can get in and actually uh so he got in earlier than um, just after five weeks, and yeah, and he and that's just a kind of his his character, and he just um, from then on he really he he uh, he just stayed in the in the gaming industry. He worked on what was it? I don't remember, but you know, got to listen to the podcast. This is really cool, and sure. also also the story of the game and how the game started, and it's very interesting how popular it is and how people seem to gravitate to that game a lot it's really crazy um they actually how they started this game was that they had one of their um guys who does um artwork i think they put up a poster with some some art that was like concept art art for for the for a game that was not built yet and they had it um in their office and then they would have people come in to the office and or would just see that whoever doesn't matter friends family co uh, co-workers or people that just uh, frequent the office they would all be super excited about this artwork for some reason and that then basically made them make the decision to okay let's take this kind of art and try to make a game out of it and then they produced and they make that game and this game really uh, just exploded and they won this apple award design award and all this kind of stuff so it's uh it's it's always nice to, to listen to success stories like that yeah so it's interesting so that's that, awesome yeah what podcast is it um it's the inquisitive podcast from from the relay network relay fm do you know about i do not i'm just googling that right now yeah, really. So it's it's also a very interesting story. So do you know the Five by Five Network? Um, I think I've seen some shows on it. Like I know of it. I don't really yeah. know the history of it or anything. Yeah, they're around since a, a longer time, and <clears throat> and so Relay FM has been founded by this British guy Mike Hurley and Stephen Hackett, and th so they kind of come out of the the kind of Apple world. You know, okay. like the the uh, Apple pundits kind of, uh -huh. um, and uh, so on five by five, you you used to have a po the podcast uh, that was basically just Marco Armand who used to who who made Instapaper back in the day, mm -hmm. um, just talk about stuff. Um, you had uh, John Syracuse, who also had. Has you know is very famous basically in the Apple world because he writes all those 
uh, super mega long reviews about macOS on Ars Technica. Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. They're always like 30 pages long and I try yeah. and read the first two pages and then I just skip to the end. Yeah. And he's, he's, <laughs> he's, an, he's amazing when he's like, the, the stuff, like how much yeah, thought he puts incredible into Incredible in detail. Yeah. So basically that's where all those podcasts are. And now they have their own podcasts and stuff like that. And, and um, so Mike Hurley, he had his own, he's from, uh, from London, I think, but so, somewhere from the UK. And he had his own little podcast, that, uh, podcast, not podcast, podcast network work that he started there. And then he got, they got acquired, so to speak, by 5x5, five by, five, by the 5x5 five five network, which is in America. And because it was kind of, it worked out because they had the same kind of uh, guests and hosts a little bit in the same kind of subjects because always it was mostly tech related and very much apple kind of gravitating to apple and products like beautiful products and stuff like that and now so he was part of five by five for a while for i think for one or two years and was hosting shows there and you know got a lot of exposure through that because five by five was bigger more popular and now he started he again started his own with you know like this kind of success in his back basically started his own network and actually also quit his job and stuff and is just doing this full-time now and Hmm. it's that's the relay fm thing and they have some some really cool shows i really like listening to to those podcasts because they always have really impeccable audio quality and mostly really smart people talking about technical things or beautiful products and stuff and I, i enjoy that that's awesome yeah, and so Inquisitive is is his interview podcast where he has every week he has a different guest, and mostly also very interesting people that he has on. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, what's what's your third one? Um, I think well, I'll keep it the same. I was going to change it, but I won't at the last minute. So it's a blog post by Circle CI who make the continuous integration system called Local State Global Concerns. Um, CircleCI uses uh, ClojureScript on the front end and React, and so they have kind of a unique stack. Mm. But they, because of that, they can do some really cool things. So all of their data for the client-side application is stored in one giant data structure, and then they kind of like send pieces of that out to different parts of their, of their application. Um, but because it's all in one data structure, um, they built this little admin console where you can just like paste in some JSON or paste in the closure version of it. And then it just sets that data structure in the application and sort of like go to the right page in the app and fill in the form fields. And uh, it makes it really easy to debug and to make sure you can get to the same state as other people in the app. So they have a way to export it and then import it really easily. And there's a little, I think, a video of it, which is kind of awesome to watch. They just copy some code and then they paste it in this little alert box that pops up. And then their app is like zaps to the same state. Wow. Um, that sounds cool. Yeah. That's not even what the article is about, really. <laughs> but I just really liked that that idea of structuring your application in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure it has some downsides that I do not comprehend yet. but it sure looks cool when they do stuff like that. Cool. Um, so my third pick is something called JSFMT. 
which I guess is short for JavaScript format or formatting. And what it is, it's, it's a node module that can format your code, your JavaScript code automatically. So um, I think it understands, it has a configuration file that you can, where you can put in rules, or I think you can use uh, the JavaScript code style checker um, config, configuration file um, to feed it. And basically what it does, it just runs over your, your code and, and just formats it after a specific style guide that you give. So if, you, if you're taking over legacy code that doesn't you know, adhere to whatever standard you have or you want to introduce, you can just have that tool kind of run over everything and format it. So GoFoomt is one of the best things about Golang. It's the version and it's built into Go. Um, it seems like, okay. and it, it only works with one style. You can't customize the styles in it. So no one argues about tabs versus spaces or mm -hmm. semicolons or where to put the braces or whatever, because mm -hmm. this tool just does it for you. Um, it seems like you could use this to just troll all your coworkers, though. Like you change all the spaces to tabs. <laughs> yes, you sure make could. A, yeah, just like push to the repository or whatever. Yeah. Then you yeah, might like, get into wars where they use it to change them back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you could do that. But um, I think it's just I, I, if you have if you have a style guide and you have you know a big team, I think that's that can be really useful, especially if you have like old code that you want to adjust. Um, yeah. So. Do you have a style guide at work? Um, no, we don't have a style guide, um, but I have a specific style that I kind of use in projects like how i write javascript and um, when i work with more people we definitely agree on that we so we agree on how we write it you know so there's sure. like an there's like a agreed kind of upon, implicit yeah implicit style guide and i use sure. i use editor config config and uh, i also started using the javascript style the code style checker or uh, well I used it once. I want to use it more. It depends on the project. But yeah, I, I, I'm definitely big on that. I think it's really important to be consistent uh, in, uh, within the project. So cool. That's why I like that. Yeah. So um, now we reach the, the music picks. Do you have a music pick? Oh, man. There's a separate section for music picks. There is a separate uh, section for music picks. Let me check really quick <clears throat> do you want to do you go first or do you have a music pick i do is that how it works okay do you want to go first and i'm gonna frantically <laughs> while still listening to yours okay uh okay so i picked uh a track called double bubble trouble and uh it is by mia and the party squad and actually the pick is more for the combination of the track and the music video. The music video is really cool. It kind of, it looks kind of, the style of it is a little bit like, you know, documentary style, um, really gritty and um, 
street style i guess you could say maybe i don't know i don't even know what that means anyway uh and there's mia do you know mia who that is yep yeah okay so she's she's in the video she looks really cool and what what they what they and they have dancers in there that that do um and it's just well chore choreographed and it yeah it's 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 really good art uh and i really enjoy that and um what's cool about the video too is uh, that they it's also it's kind of a it, it the the images more so than the lyrics of the song because the lyrics of the song are kind of i looked them up because i can't understand her but the lyrics of the song are really uh nonsensical and uh i guess that's that's often the case with her i am not sure but this the video is kind of contains like social criticism because what she has like AK-47s in there that are 3D printed so they have like yeah. a whole bunch of AK-47s like made out of plastic because they were 3D printed and in all kinds of colors and then you have uh like drones um so that yeah it's out in the street in front of like a like a, it looks like a project building or something like that And you have like this dancers dancing and, and over those dancers, you have drones flying and they have like neon lights on them that form peace signs, right? So basically mm. they're connecting drones to peace and she's definitely criticizing or she's kind of, you know, combining something um, with a peace symbol that actually stands for more for war nowadays, mostly sure and and killing people and it's kind of it's kind of a yeah so so there's so it's good art and at the same time there's this kind of substance in it which which i like which is really cool it's it's not a new track i think it's uh from well maybe it is actually from this year or sometime i'm not sure i don't really um care about that it's just it just uh popped up pop, popped up again for me today and i thought i made it the pick because it's a it's a Cool track and a cool video. find right. something i am ready <laughs> awesome so uh i had to work hard to not pick something that i had already picked on on javascript jabber because i usually pick music there every week but this is uh it's by a band called until the ribbon breaks mm -hmm. and it's actually a remix 
of a song called Wicked Games by The Weeknd. Um, Until the Ribbon Breaks makes really cool, like huge sounding electronic-ish music. Um, and I think I, I like their remixes better than I like, and their remixes and covers better than I like their actual music. Um, but they do a really good job interpreting other people's songs in interesting ways. Uh, I don't know enough about the video to talk about it like you did. It is just weird, random pictures. I don't know. Cool. I don't think there's a big theme in it, but but the song is great. I've been listening to this band a lot, so that's my pick. So, okay. Um, so, where can the listeners find you online? Uh, I'm Jergason on Twitter, J E R G A S O N. Um, what does that have, stand for? It doesn't stand for anything. It was a nickname okay. that my friend's older brother gave me when I was 11 or something. <laughs> nice. Yep. That's, that's about it. He, he always used like made up names for people instead of real names. Um, yeah, uh, I have my website, which I update very infrequently is at jamesondance.com. It's pretty easy. And then JavaScript Jabber, if you're interested in JavaScript, uh, check that out. Definitely. I think that's about all the places I am online. If you find other ones, let me know. Cause that means <laughs> I, d I don't know about them. <laughs> okay. So you're not a hundred percent aware of all the places you are. Uh, yeah, or something. maybe like, like my social security number has been leaked online somewhere. Yeah, if you find that, let me know. 
Okay. <laughs> okay, I want to thank everybody for listening. You can find all the show notes for this episode on descriptive.audio slash episodes slash eight. If you have any feedback or guest requests, hit me up on Twitter at descriptivepod or use the feedback form on the website. Um, Jameson, it was a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. See ya.